Hey, hey, I'm Rebecca. This is a podcast for all my single friends out there and for anyone who's ever been single. Cue the laughs, life lessons, and all things love. Welcome to Dating in the Bay. Now, let's get to it. Howdy, howdy, everybody. Happy Wednesday. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome back to Dating in the Bay. Today, I have Logan Yuri here. And you guys, I've been trying to get Logan on the show for nine months. So I'm so beyond happy, thrilled, beaming to get to do this episode. And we had some hurdles along the way. We were recording the episode and then Logan's computer like, did a forced reset or whatever that took a couple hours. I'm so happy that we finally got to chat about her book. We'll get to her chat and I'll explain more about who she is in a second. But I want to tell you guys about this article that I read because I try to periodically read as much as I can. The article I want to talk about is called How to Stop Trying to Be Better. Enjoying Yourself as You Are Right Now is the Forever Goal. And I really like this article. I will link to it. It's in the Ask Polly newsletter that I get. And she talks about how like contentment in the moment is that's the forever goal. And we're always trying to like be more of this or to be less of that or like chasing something, some impossible form of perfectionism. And she really is urging in this article to just, all you have to do is just be present and like mindful in that moment and just appreciate it. And she said that basically the goal is not to always be better and better. The goal is every day is simply to feel where you are and accept it. What is happiness after all? Happiness is enjoying yourself as you are right now and connecting to other people as they are. That's it. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to win anyone over. You just have to savor this day. Feel where you are. Breathe in it with all of your senses. Delight in all of your absurdities, your foolishness, your wild daydreams, your good heart. This moment is delicious. Slow down and look. There's so much more here. And I just, the article really hit home because we are kind even in this COVID mentality, we're still always operating like in this kind of frenzied state where we always need to be continuously improving. Everybody's always continuously just trying to always be better, improving something, learning some new language, new skill. But really we can just be, we can be flawed and we can be foolish, like she says, and we can be imperfect and that if we're always busy striving for like imperfection, which doesn't exist, and also shameless plug, if you haven't heard my episode with Catherine Ely on perfectionism, called Imperfect Thriving, I highly recommend it. I think it's one of the most popular episodes that I've done. It really resonates. It doesn't matter if you're in a relationship, if you're married, if you're divorced, I think the episode will resonate. And just because perfectionism is a problem, it's like a rampant problem that most people have and they don't even realize. Point being, I will recommend this article and I will link it in the show notes. And yes, so now let me tell you a little bit about Logan. Logan is a behavioral scientist turned dating coach and she's the author of How to Not Die Alone. She's the director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge and she leads a research team dedicated to helping people find love. She studied psychology at Harvard and she ran Google's behavioral science team. And she also has been in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Time Magazine, The Washington Post, GQ, and glamour and i'm super excited to share our combo with you guys and with that let's get to the episode hope you enjoy it all right logan yuri i'm so excited to have you on dating in the bay it's an honor to finally get to meet you how are you doing i'm doing great thank you so much for having me on the show of course so before i forget is shay from your book 
still single? <laughs> uh, I can't reveal that information, but you are not the only one who has asked me about that. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for asking that question. That's so funny. I loved your book. I love all of the San Francisco local color that you did. And also just all of the actual behavioral science you apply to dating. It's kind of like all of my favorite things in one book. So yeah, you've worked at Google, Airbnb, and now you're at Hinge. And I would love to just hear about your career trajectory, like how you got to where you are today and how you've decided to write this book. Sure. Yeah. So I've always had these dual interests in psychology and decision making. And then on the other hand, sex, dating and relationships. And I've been trying for a long time to combine the two. And so for example, when I was in college, I was studying psychology and I actually took the sociology class where I studied the porn watching habits of Harvard undergrads. And so always trying to basically take the psychology element and apply it to dating and relationships. And then when I worked at Google, my first job, kind of unrelated to the fact that I had written that piece, but still a funny trajectory was that I worked in the porn pod, which was this team at Google where we ran the advertising for pornography companies, sex toy operators. When I was at Google, I ultimately had the opportunity to work on a team called the Irrational Lab, which was applying behavioral science to Google products and Google marketing. And so what that meant was taking these ideas from academia, things like when you reinforce one element of somebody's identity, you can change their behavior. Or if you use deadlines, people are more likely to take action and then use that, let's say, to get somebody to make a change to their Google Ads account. And at the time I was single, and I was on dating apps. I remember the first night I got Tinder, I swiped for six hours. And so I had this interesting academic job at Google, but I was just so interested in what was happening with modern dating. And I tried to find different ways to combine my different interests. And so I started this talk series, this interview series called Talks at Google Modern Romance. And I brought in different people to talk about what was going on in modern dating and communication and polyamory. And it really took off. And I was like, okay, there's something here. Like people really want this information. And so that kind of gave me the encouragement I needed to be like, this is something I want to pursue. And then ultimately, after a few years, I was like, I've been at Google for a long time. I love it. But I want to be want to take more risks. I want to do something different. I was sick of the commute. And so I went to Airbnb. And I loved working there. I learned so much about design, about actually specifically designing for experiences, designing for trust. But I still had this nagging feeling that I wanted to do something in the dating space. And so I applied to South by Southwest to give this talk, what behavioral science can teach you about online dating. And the talk was accepted and I gave it. And that was just another one of those moments. I was like, there's something here. Like, I want to do this. And so ultimately, I left Airbnb and I started pursuing this full time. And that took the form of doing a residency at TED. Through the TED thing, I got a book deal. Through the book deal, I got the job at Hinge. And now... I get to work with people one-on-one as a dating coach, but then I also get to work very much at scale with people reading my book. And then with Hinge, obviously millions of people are, are using the app and I'm affecting how a lot of people are dating. You talk about there's three categories of daters, romanticizers, maximizers, and hesitators. Can you talk through those? And then are there any other like catch-all categories for people who don't necessarily fall into any of those? Sure. Yeah. So how the three dating tendencies came about and anyone who's listening, you can take the quiz in my book. You can take the quiz on my website. I had all these different dating coaching clients and I found that even though they came from different walks of life, they actually seemed to suffer from the same dating blind spots. And by dating blind spots, I mean something that was holding them back from finding love, but 
specifically that they couldn't identify on their own. And so the three categories, what they all have in common is unrealistic expectations. And so the romanticizer, that's the person who loves love, who says, there's a soulmate, there's one person out there for me, that person's going to find me, it's unromantic to use dating apps, you know, I want to have this amazing how we met story. And the issue with the romanticizer is that they have unrealistic expectations of relationships and they think that it will be easy and that if it's not easy, then it must not be their soulmate. So they leave some really great potential partners behind because it hits that inevitable rough spot and then they say, must not be the right person for me. The next one is the maximizer and they have unrealistic expectations of their partner. And so in the Bay Area where I know that you live and I live and many of my clients are from, this is very common. It's the person who says, I love my girlfriend, but could I be 5% happier with somebody else? I like my boyfriend, but could I be with somebody 10% more ambitious? There's always this sense of there's something better out there. The grass is always greener. What else can I find? And it's hard because the maximizer is so focused on seeing all possible options and choosing the best one that they don't actually take the time to make a decision and commit to it, which is how a relationship is built by actually investing in somebody and building something great. And then finally, there's the hesitator. And not as many of my clients are hesitators because these people don't necessarily seek me out for dating coaching, but I'm getting a ton of emails from people who read the book who are hesitators. And hesitators have unrealistic expectations of themselves. These are the people who say, I'm just not ready to date yet. I'll be ready to date when when I lose 10 pounds, when I have a more impressive job title, when I finally clean up my apartment and they feel like they're just not lovable yet and that one day they'll wake up and be ready for love. But that's just completely a misconception because no one's ever 100% ready for anything. You kind of just have to jump off into the deep end. And so for the hesitator, the thing that I recommend is that they need to get out there. They need to figure out what kind of person they want to be with. They need to get better at dating. And so the advice for the hesitator is don't wait, date. I like that. We are going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor, GiftPod. Emotions are way more intensified since we don't have all those pre-pandemic life distractions. This year has taught me a lot about resilience and perspective. And the ups and downs of dating during a pandemic are, um, yeah, they're a lot. What's helped me to get through are the unsung bays, my friendships. Through GiftPod, I'm able to record a message to my closest bays and let them know I'm thinking about them and all the fun things we'll do together post-quarantine. The team at GiftPod will spruce it up with music and give it to them as a private podcast. It's a great gift to send to your friends as a pick-me-up and an extra boost to brighten their days during this kind of turbulent time. GiftPod is offering listeners 10% off with the code 104BAE. That's the number 10, S-O-R-B-A-E. You can check them out at giveagiftpod.com. Now, let's get back to the episode. So one of my favorite parts about the book, I know it's not as like behavioral science, but the whole fuck the spark, the whole idea of chemistry is this explosive roller coaster versus you talk about the slow burn. What are tips that people can use at in their everyday lives to basically combat the spark? Yeah, I mean, that chapter has really taken off and I'm happy about it. I think it's because it feels controversial. Like if somebody is like, wait, why are you against the spark? Like the spark is wonderful. It feels so good when you walk into the coffee shop for your first date and you feel that pang of excitement and the room stops. And yes, that does feel really good. I have certainly felt the spark and it's 
a peak life experience. But the point of the fuck the spark chapter is that you should not make assumptions around your compatibility with somebody based on the spark. And so the three main myths that I bust in the book around the spark are one, the spark can't grow over time. And we just know that that's not true. A lot of people, it just takes them time, right? Like I knew my husband for eight years before we started dating. Like there was a feeling of connection, but it wasn't like I met him that first day in college and was like, oh, we need to start dating immediately. Like sometimes you just like someone more the more that you're around them. That's why people marry someone from work. That's why people marry somebody who lives in their apartment building. The more you're exposed to someone called the mere exposure effect, the more you like them. And so this idea of love at first sight and instant chemistry, I think it leads people astray because the spark can grow. The second myth is that if you feel the spark, then it's necessarily a good thing. And that's just not true. I'm sure you've seen this in your dating life that some people are just very sparky. The Burning Man guy was very sparky. And I, I learned that later when other people were like, oh yeah, I felt that with him. And so what I interpreted as something between the two of us was actually just his personality. He gave a lot of people the feeling of a spark. And some of that had to do with being really hot or really charming or even really narcissistic. He just gave a lot of people that feeling of connection. And so just because you feel the spark, it could actually be a sign of anxiety or somebody not making sure that you know how they feel versus truly a connection. And and the last myth is that if you feel the spark, then the relationship is viable. And that's just not the case. A lot of divorced couples had the spark once. A lot of couples meet in these super romantic ways and stay together for it and are like, well, we're meant to be, you know, I was on the plane and his seat was moved and he sat next to me and then we talked for five hours and we're meant to be. And then they stay in these relationships that don't feel good because of the sparky how we met. And so the advice there is don't stay in the wrong relationship because you met the quote unquote right way. And in the end, the how we met is such a small part of the relationship. And then the overall advice is fuck the spark and go for the slow burn. Go for that person who makes you feel like you can rely on them, who is consistent, who would be a great long-term partner. And sometimes these people aren't the most charming and it takes them time to open up and show you who they are. But if you only focus on the spark, then you're missing out on these great potential partners, these slow burn people. And that reminds me too about the prom date versus life partner. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like I fall into that trap or I have been in that trap before where it's like, oh, I'm always looking at it from the lens of the prom date mentality where it's somebody who's charming that you want your friends to like that seems like a little bit out of your league. And I feel like that's kind of been, at least for me, something that I've been personally trying to overcome and reading it in the book, how you said about how, oh, it's somebody that you will help you with your ailing parents or different kind of attributes that you'd want in a life partner, I think is a nice way to frame how we can look at it in like a new lens, I suppose. Thank you. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I definitely think that these ideas are very related, that the prom date is very sparky, but that's a problem. And the life partner is the slow burn. They're the person who might not be initially charming, but would make a great long-term partner. And so I just feel like it's fine to date the prom date when you're 16. It's fine to date like the hot guy in your Spanish class who you're excited to kiss at the end of the night. Like, you know, you're you're having fun and you're not necessarily trying to build a life with this person. But the issue is that we don't make that mental shift. We keep going after that guy from our Spanish class and we have these patterns. And at a certain point, you need to take yourself more seriously. And I talk in the book about a woman who was in her mid-30s wanted to have kids, you know, wanted to like become pregnant and give birth to kids and have multiple kids. And she was dating these guys that just were not on her level. They were not serious. They were not ready to be partners. They're not ready to be parents. And it felt like she was making all these excuses for them, but 
you know, not that they were even good prom dates. She was just really not taking herself seriously enough. And so sometimes it requires an actual mental shift. So let's switch gears to what you call compare and despair, how there's this Instagram comparison trap game and just in general with comparing ourselves to other people's highlight reels. Can you speak more to that? And I know also you talk about how it also impacts the people who are in the couple and it creates a discrepancy in their minds as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so my thinking on this is inspired by the work of Esther Perel, who maybe your listeners are familiar with. You know, she wrote the great book, Mating in Captivity, and she has some really famous TED Talks. And so she talks about how we used to live in these villages and there were very thin walls. And when it came to other couples, you could hear what she says is every fight and every fuck. And what she means is you really got a sense of how other couples operated and you saw the highs and the lows. What happens right now is we only see people's highlight reels. We only see the sunset walk. We only see the perfectly curated homemade dinner. We only see the perfect engagement photo captured with the Bay Bridge in the background. And so we're not seeing the fights. We're not seeing the moments of tension and disagreements. We're just seeing those happy moments. And so if you're in a couple, then you look at those couples and you say, wow, it seems so easy and effortless for them. I must be in the wrong relationship. If I were in the right relationship, then we would also have these effortless, beautifully filtered moments. And if you're single, you just think, oh, when I'm in a relationship, it will all be easy. It will all be those perfectly captured moments. And so I think that it really does us a disservice when we only see the positive sides of couples, because then it leads us astray and it makes us devalue our own relationship when actually we're just seeing one very small slice of somebody else's relationship. Yeah, I really appreciate hearing that. And that kind of ties into the idea of like the settling piece that you talk about, where the perception of settling is like a really negative, but really you talk about how you can actually, once your criteria are met, that's when you would then decide that you are not dating anymore because you are like satisfied based on your criteria. Yeah. So there's this book, I wonder if you've read it, called Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. It's a book by Lori Gottlieb. No, I got to read it. It's really great. I really recommend it. Lori Gottlieb is an incredible therapist. She's also the in-house therapist for The Atlantic. She wrote a great book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. So this book, it's not the best title. I think Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough has a lot of kind of red flags in it, like just the idea of marry him super gendered. I think the word settling is a strikes people in a wrong way. And Mr. Good Enough, I think strikes people in the wrong way. But actually, I think the book is extremely useful. And I do agree with that main thesis, which is that people go around thinking the perfect person is only one swipe away. I could be 5% happier with somebody else. I could find somebody who's 10% more ambitious, 10% funnier, whatever it is. But there's this mathematical line of inquiry called optimal stop theory that I get into in the book. And it's called the secretary problem. And basically the idea here is that if you are hiring a secretary and you have 100 applicants and you need to review the applicants one at a time, and after each one you say yes or no, at what point in reviewing the 100 should you hire somebody? And so the fear would be if you hire somebody at the beginning, you don't know the breadth of people who are out there and you might miss out on some really great candidates. If you hire somebody at the end, well, maybe all the good candidates came earlier and you know number 99 or 100 just isn't very good. And so the mathematically correct answer here is that you are supposed to review 37 of the candidates. After you've gone through 37 of them, you say, who was the single best candidate among the first 37? That person becomes your meaningful benchmark. And then the next time that you find someone who's as good or better 
than that first person in the first 37, you hire that person. And so the idea here is that you get a sense of what's out there, you create a benchmark, that is now your expectation. And the next time you find someone, you commit to the person who is like that. And so in the book, I give the advice that maximizers, these people who want to do all the research and want to turn over every stone, that they use the secretary problem. And so for the average person, right, we have no idea how many people we're going to date in our lives. There's no equivalent of 100 applicants. But in this great book, Algorithms to Live By, they say, well, what if we apply the problem by saying, how many years are you going to date? And so just for the sake of argument, they say, this person is going to date from 18 to 40. So what is 37% of the years between 18 and 40? It's 26.1 years. And so what it means is that at age 26, you have dated 37% of the people you're going to date and you come up with the benchmark. And then you say, who was the single best person that I dated from 18 to 26? That is now my meaningful benchmark. And the next time I find someone as good or better than that person, I'm going to commit to them. And sometimes when people hear this, they're like, oh, you're trying to turn me into this rational robot and I'm already way past 26.1. What am I supposed to do? But think about it as a metaphor. The idea is you have likely already dated somebody who would make a great long-term partner. And so the next time you find someone like that, instead of saying, who else is out there? Could I do slightly better? Who have I not met? You say, well, this person is as good or better than my meaningful benchmark and I'm going to commit to them. And so the whole idea here is that you should have standards and you should satisfy to your standards. You should have standards, fulfill them and commit as opposed to having standards, fulfilling them and then wondering what else is out there. Interesting. I hope everybody's taking notes on that part because that seems like something that will definitely be helpful for everybody. I want to talk about how we can make dates more fun because I think sometimes people get really into this habit of they get their laundry list of criteria. They want to treat it like a job interview and that sucks all the fun out of dating. So do you have any tips and tricks? I know you work at Hinge to how people can bring back the fun in having, um, especially a first date. I think those can usually probably like induce the most stress on people. Yeah, absolutely. I have a couple of hot takes here. So one of them is, yes, I feel like one of the biggest issues with modern dating is that people treat them like job interviews. And so what is a job interview? It's we sit across from each other, we evaluate each other, we see if we fulfill each other's checklists. And we're in the mode of where did you go to college? What did you study? Why? How many siblings do you have? Right? It's just an information exchange. We're not having an experience. We're not connecting and we're not really getting to know each other in a deeper way. And so really the first step is getting out of the interview mode and making it into something fun. And so what I recommend that people do is switch from the evaluative mindset, are you good enough for me, to the experiential mindset. That's being in the moment, that's being present, that's actually saying, I am sitting with another person and I'm here to be present and to experience what the world is like when I'm with you. And so some ways to do that, in the book, I actually have 10 steps for designing more fun dates. And it's all about getting out of that interview mode. And so some of the things are, For example, the date doesn't just start when you log into the FaceTime or you show up at Ritual Coffee. The date starts hours before when you're setting your mindset. And so whether you think the date will go poorly or you think the date will go well, you're right. Because your mindset, are you ready to connect or are you ready to judge? Are you exhausted from a day of work or are you actually feeling present and ready to listen? Those things have a huge impact. And so actually doing a pre-date ritual that gets you into the right mindset, that really helps the date go better. 
Other tips include designing dates that really lead to connection. And so instead of sitting across from each other at the bar, can you actually go for a walk? Because it's easier to connect with people when you're not stressing about making intense eye contact, right? Why parents often bring up hard conversations with their kids when they're driving. Because when you're looking out on the road instead of at each other, it can actually make it easier to think and to communicate. Other things include, you know, people really think that they should be interesting. But what the research shows is that it's more important to be interested. The best way to charm someone is by being a great listener and making them feel interesting. And they will like you more and they will feel more connected to you. And so worry less around telling a story about how you got promoted or, you know, the really fancy sailing trip that you planned in Croatia. And instead, ask good follow-up questions. Put the focus on the other person because that's what makes them feel interesting and makes them feel attracted to you. And then one final tip is ending on a high note. And so there's this really great research from behavioral economist Daniel Kahneman that shows that people disproportionately remember things based on the peak moment and how they end. He found that people actually prefer colonoscopies that are last slightly longer, but end in a less painful way because they remember the ending. They remember the less, the less painful ending. And so applying that colonoscopy research to dating, the idea here is that what can you do to make the end of the date special? Can you give someone a meaningful compliment? Can you show them a surprise mural near the restaurant that you meet at? Can you order the dessert? Can you go in for the goodnight kiss? And so what can you do to actually leave that person on a high and really, really end the date in a meaningful and special way? And I like that too, because it seems like most of it's just seeing how that person feels around you and less of like what you're actually saying, but basically being able to connect with them and show them that you care. And I think so much about that ties into the mindset. And I feel like most of the things that I end up talking about on the podcast have to do with mindset and how we show up because half the battle is just ourselves getting into a positive place. And then I think the rest of it will all fall into place, like you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. What's the best dating advice that you've ever received? Well, I told you earlier about how I worked with a dating coach and how she helped me break my bad habits and realize that this type of guy I was chasing, which at that moment was the Burning Man guy, but it was really a pattern that I'd had for a long time, that the side of me that that person brought out made me feel anxious, insecure, worried, not desired. And that what really mattered was how I felt around this person. And so I think the best advice that I've received that I would love to give other people is throw out your checklist, break your bad habits, and really focus on what side of you somebody else brings out. I love that. I think that's super helpful. And then what's what would you say is the main takeaway that you would hope that if somebody took one main key takeaway from your book, what would that be? The main takeaway that I would want somebody to take is that a great relationship is the culmination of good decisions. And that if you make good decisions, you propel yourself into a good relationship. And if you make bad decisions and repeat bad habits, then you are doomed to not enter a relationship or enter into a relationship that you would want to be in. And why I really care about that is that I hope that it empowers people to see I can change the direction I'm headed in. I have these patterns that aren't serving me and I can break them and develop new ones. And so there's nothing wrong with you. You you are not impossible to love. There is not a reason why something in your past means that you'll never find someone, but you may be stuck in some bad habits. And so the work is really to do a self audit, understand what those patterns are and work actively to break them. Because when you break those bad habits, that's when you develop new ways of being and can actually find a great relationship. Yeah, I, I'm in the Facebook group for your book club. 
And I love seeing people write, like they're super aware now of what they, what their tendencies are and how they're overcoming them. And it's like kind of holding them accountable. Cool. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And it's been nice to see in the group hesitators being like, I know that I'm resistant to dating, but you know, I commit to dating in three weeks and all of that stuff. All of the accountability is really helpful. Yeah. And the profile pictures, I noticed people were posting where, yeah, and getting, it was super awesome to see. So what's next for you? I feel like you, you've been so successful at everything you've done. What do you see? Like you're going to have more books? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm feeling you're figuring it out. I mean, I'm still full-time at Hinge. And so a lot of time is spent there and we're looking into some really cool research projects this year. I've been getting a ton of emails about one-on-one coaching since the book came out. And so I'm just really navigating my way through those and figuring out what do I have time for? And am I going to do coaching in small groups? Am I going to do more one-on-one coaching, just figuring out how to spend my time? And then, yeah, I don't have any plans yet for a second book. Like I don't have something that I'm planning, but it has been really interesting to get this one out there, see the impact. And I, I think I wouldn't be surprised if I ended up writing another book. Oh, good. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. You have to come back again. I will. Thank you. Well, this has, this has been such a true treat. And I really want to thank you again. How can people find you on the socials? Yeah. So people can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Logan Yuri. People can go to my website, loganyuri.com, where they can take the three dating tendencies quiz. And then, yes, you mentioned the Facebook group, which we can link in the notes where people are sharing pretty vulnerably about their dating lives. People are supporting each other. There was even a swipe party last week that I wasn't there, but people got together just to encourage each other to say yes to more people. And so it would be really great if people got involved with the extended How to Not Die Alone community. Yeah, I was just going to say the community part seems like a really nice added bonus and aspect too, since we're all in it together. It takes a village, right? Thank you guys so much for listening today. And I want to thank Logan again for joining me. I would say the dating hack of the week to kind of piggyback off of our episode is that I would really encourage you to take the dating tendencies quiz and find out your blind spots and The first step is really identifying what's potentially holding us back. And if you're a romanticizer, you might be holding on to assuming that Prince Charming will just plop in your bedroom, which most likely is not going to happen. And the same thing with like the hesitators and the maximizers that we also discussed earlier, they each have their own blind spots. So the quicker that we are able to figure those out, the quicker we can button those up and then move right along and keep enjoying the process together. So thank you guys again for joining me and you can follow us on Instagram at Dating in the Bay and I would love it if you would subscribe to my podcast and you could even share it with a couple friends. Thank you guys so much and I'll see you next week. Bye.